Great. Uh, would you like to turn with me, please, to um, the book of Acts, chapter 2? And uh, we're going to start at verse 1 in, uh, in the Pew Bibles. It's on page 1032, I believe. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then I'm going to jump ahead to verse 40, and it's not on the screen. But with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful account of how you poured out your Spirit at Pentecost. 
Lord, would you help us unpack these words? Would you help us understand their relevance for us today? Lord, would you help us see something of your plans and purposes as we study these words together? In Jesus' name, amen. Tom, I wonder if you could uh, show the, uh, the video clip, please. Could have the, the slides, please. Sometimes things get lost in translation, don't they? And uh, we're going to be looking at a, a passage today where God brought, through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, meaning and understanding to people who otherwise could not understand. We're going to look at the mighty outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know whether it was uh, um, kind of prophetic or not, but uh, we lost the, um, the fire marshal's uh, badges this morning. <laughs> so clearly God did not intend there to be fire marshals on duty. We have found them. So let's hope and pray that uh, as God outpours the fire of his Holy Spirit, we don't, we don't need to quench that. We don't need to, uh, to put that out. So, um, if we could have the slides, please. Anyway, whilst they're they're doing that, let's have a a kind of quick summary of uh, the story so far. If you recall, uh, a few weeks back we looked at uh, Acts chapter 1, and uh, we saw that Jesus had granted his disciples all authority. He did that in teaching them about his kingdom. And he said that I'm giving you authority to go out and preach the kingdom to the whole world. But he told them, if you recall, and this is our motto text for the year, to wait. Because although he'd granted his authority, he said they had to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit would give them the power to be able to exercise that authority in bringing about his kingdom. And then when Darren was here uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, he talked to us about the importance of prayer and how the disciples met the whole time, devoted to pray. And Darren was telling us about the importance of prayer, and uh, you know, I would echo that, that if we want to see the Holy Spirit move, we have to devote ourselves to prayer. And then those who were here last Sunday night, David took us through um, this same passage, looking at aspects of 
God breathing his Holy Spirit on us and into us. The very breath, the very word of God. But now we come to Pentecost. And I thought it would be uh, worthwhile just explaining a bit of the context of Pentecost because I think it brings this whole passage into... uh, um, it, well, it helps us understand it. It brings it into context, and uh, you can see something of God's wonderful plan through specific timing. Now, I don't know if you've looked in your um, concordances, but Acts is the first time that the word Pentecost is used. But actually, it was a well-known celebration of the Jews. And there are a series of Jewish festivals that um, some of them happen in springtime and some happen in kind of summer and autumn, but we're going to specifically look at the timing of the, uh, the springtime festivals. They start with the Passover. Remember the Passover that the, uh, um, uh, the Israelites celebrated just before they left Egypt. The day after that is the, uh, um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that goes on typically for six or seven days. Then depending on how the Sabbath falls in, uh, um, in that week of the uh, celebration of unleavened bread, we have the uh, uh, celebration of the first fruits, which comes the day after the Sabbath um, in unleavened bread. So typically between Passover and first fruits, it's about a week. And then seven weeks after, or 50 days, if you kind of go on to the day after that, they have the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. The name Pentecost comes from the word 50. Pente, meaning 50. So here we have this this period of of celebration of the Jewish festivals. And the Jews would have been well familiar with these and would have practiced them, not just back in the time of uh, the uh, exit from, um, and the exodus from Egypt, but right up until this time. So why am I explaining this? The importance for me is that when you start to look at overlaying how Jesus fulfilled this, we start to see that God had a perfect pattern for his outworking of his plan. Jesus' death was akin to the Passover. He was the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. The feast of unleavened bread was akin to his burial. And the first fruits was his resurrection. Those were all fulfilled during Jesus' first coming. And then we see in the, the church age, 50 days, Pentecost, after the resurrection, we see the Holy Spirit. And what was the Holy Spirit aligned to? The Feast of Weeks, or the first harvest that the Jews celebrated in the springtime. And the coming of the Holy Spirit signifies signifies God's harvesting. And what happened at Pentecost? 3,000 people believed. So I just wanted to go through that because I think it's so significant in terms of God's planning. And I want you to kind of recall that and remember that as we look further on in the passage because actually the festival timetable goes on and it becomes very relevant for our church age. 
So, the Spirit comes at Passover. There's quite a bit of, um, not kind of controversy, but friendly disagreement over exactly what the events were on that uh, first um, outpouring of the Spirit at that celebration of the Feast of Weeks or, or Pentecost. And you know what? I don't think it matters that much what the real details were. The real importance is kind of what the outcome was. But I just want to share a few thoughts. That some people are in the camp that the Holy Spirit came to the disciples as they were all gathered in an upper room praying together and the Holy Spirit came on them. Others would hold on to the fact that actually the disciples were in the temple courts at the time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it was a very much more public um, event. Personally, I hold with the latter one. And, and the reason that I hold with that is because if you look at the timings, the Spirit came at uh, um, 9 o'clock in the morning. And if you look at the timings of prayer that the Jews would have exercised during these feasts, they would have met at 6 in the morning, 9, 12, 3, and 6 in the evening. That would have been their pattern of prayer, and they would have met in the temple to pray. So I would be very surprised if 9 o'clock in the morning came and it didn't find the disciples in the temple courts praying and worshipping God. And it was at that time that the Holy Spirit was outpoured. I think the other reason why I think they were in a very public place was because when the Spirit comes, people noticed. This was not a private event in some kind of small upper room where the disciples were kind of in fear of uh, being found out. People witnessed a rushing wind and they witnessed tongues of fire coming down and settling on the disciples, they noticed when the Spirit moved. This was very, very public. I wonder, do we notice when the Spirit moves? Another reason why I think that... uh, the Spirit came upon the disciples and actually came on the 12 disciples, not the bigger kind of 120 group, was if you look at verse 7, when the people have noticed and they're querying what's going on, they say, are not these men Galileans? Referring directly to the 12 disciples. Remember, Matthias had been uh, appointed as a disciple to replace Judas. And look who it is that stands up. It's not the 120 that stand up. Verse 14, Peter stood up with the 11. So I think the very visible outpouring happened in the temple courts to the chosen 12 who Jesus previously had breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But this was just the the beginning. So, first of all, people notice. You know, the Spirit comes in many different forms. On this particular occasion, 
he chose the form of a rushing wind and tongues of fire. But he doesn't always come in that form. Sometimes he chooses a pillar of cloud. When Jesus was baptized, he chose the form of a dove. Sometimes the Spirit comes in the form of an earthquake. Sometimes he comes as a gentle voice. Do you know, and I think we can get so hung up on the kind of manifestation of the Spirit, we kind of forget what the Spirit is actually about. But for sure, what happened on this day, it caught people's attention. And there were two distinct reactions to what happened, to the manifestations of the Holy Spirit coming. Some people mocked. They experienced the power. They saw these fantastic things coming and they said, these guys are drunk. Do you know, today, Christians are going to be increasingly mocked, I think, for standing firm in their beliefs. You know, sometimes people kind of um, mock in a kind of... uh, patronizing way. Oh, surely you can't believe that. You know, we live in an age of, uh, of uh, kind of enlightenment. We know, we understand much better now, don't we? Some people mock in quite an arrogant and an angry way, saying, how dare you believe that? When the Spirit really moves, people will mock <laughs> what we believe, what we stand for. And we have to, as the disciples did, stand firm. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. These people who thought that the disciples were drunk did not have spiritual enlightenment. And they dismissed it as people being drunk. So we have to be really careful when we look at how the Spirit works to discern whether or not things are of God or not of God. The third thing that happened is that people began to understand. Now this whole thing about speaking in tongues and And understanding foreign languages and being able to speak in foreign languages is, again, a great source of uh, contention um, in Christian circles. Some would go as far as to say that you can't really be spirit-filled unless you speak in tongues. You can't really be spirit-filled unless you're exercising prophecy or exercising gifts of healing. I would say no, 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 no. What did Jesus repeatedly say to his disciples? He said, by their fruit you shall know them, not by their gifts. Same spirit, fruit of the spirit, gifts of the spirit. Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. Let me just give you a couple of passages. Matthew seven fifteen. 
Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Then further on, verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And get this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wow. And maybe you um, kind of remember when we were looking at Exodus. What was it that Pharaoh's magicians were able to do? They were able to exercise gifts. They were able to replicate a lot of what Moses and Aaron did. But it wasn't a gift from God. So we have to be so careful in interpreting how the Spirit is moving in our church and how things that are not of the Spirit are also moving and would come to deceive us. We have to have a real spirit of discernment. But I'll go back. Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know them. So don't be fooled into thinking that just because God has not chosen to impart the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy, that you're some kind of second-class citizen, some kind of second-class Christian. God calls us to bear fruit, to have the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control that are the true mark of the Holy Spirit. Then God may choose to give gifts, but seek first that fruit. And there have been many kind of supposed outpourings of the Holy Spirit. There have been many occasions where it's been hailed that the Spirit is finally moving and a revival is here. And do you know what? In some cases, absolutely, that has been the case. But there's equally been many cases where actually it's been more disruptive destructive. Lives have been hurt by false false prophecies, by false promises. Let's not look just for the gifts. Let's look for the fruit and test the gifts. But the outpouring of tongues on this particular uh, event clearly was an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Because through it, people were saved. The fruit was (laughs) that people came to uh, um, believe. And you know, the outpouring of tongues, I think, absolutely is an antitype of what went on in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story? So all these people in Genesis 11 got together and they said, right, we are going to make the name of man great on earth. We're going to build this tower that extends to the very heavens. And God looked on that and said, if all these people speaking as one language achieve this, then nothing will be impossible for them. And I'm going to come and confuse their language to stop them. You know, God said, enough's enough. I can't have people, um, you know, 
going against my, uh, my will and uh, kind of uh, mocking my name in this way. So God came at that time and confused their languages. That was the source of uh, 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 diversity of language. See, when man puts himself first, there is confusion. But here we have the antitype that God, through his Holy Spirit, when we put God first, he brings understanding. Even though all these people from all these different uh, um, kind of races and, and languages, uh, they had kind of, they understood different words, the Holy Spirit allowed them to understand. God confused language when man wanted to make a name for himself. When the Spirit comes, he brings understanding to bring glory to God. Now, it's kind of interesting that, I don't know if you counted up the number of different languages that were referred to in that passage. So I counted 15. 15 kind of regions and, and areas and, and uh, particular uh, countries that, that were mentioned. It was 12 disciples who stood up to speak. Clearly says that. So from 12 disciples speaking, there was an interpretation of 15 different languages. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So I believe that the Holy Spirit, when he works in our, his, in our lives, he has kind of a, a transmit and a receive mode. Because there were more languages and interpretations received than there were transmitted. I see this happen time and time again. I don't know those of you who take a, a daily reading, word for today or, or something like that, every day with Jesus. The number of times I read that and I think, this was written for me. Exactly for me. It absolutely meets my, the position that I'm in, the circumstances I'm facing today. How could this possibly be? And you know, there must be hundreds of other people, thousands of other people reading exactly the same words and they will probably think exactly the same. You see, the Spirit can take single truths and interpret them directly to our lives. Isn't that wonderful? Twelve disciples, 15 different languages heard. Praise God. But also, don't forget, there were some that just heard gibberish. And they said, these guys are drunk. So just in the same way that God's word, messages from God can be interpreted for us by the Holy Spirit, those that are not able to discern through the Spirit will just see gibberish. People through the centuries have read the word of God and it's meant nothing to them. Very famous people. So we need to seek God's empowering that we might understand his word. So we come on to the um, reference to the prophecy from Joel um, where it's talking about the last days. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all men. Now this term, the last days, it's, um, I think it's widely uh, abused actually. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we're in the last days now. Well, yeah, we are. <laughs> We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. It doesn't actually mean anything in particular. It's not like, well, next week, that's it, it's all gone. It may be. But we need to understand the last days in a very different context than uh, um, 
you know, this is it. You see, the last days, if you think back to that time chart, were marked by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the launching, the birth, if you like, of the church age. And it's God saying that in his eternal time plan that we're in the last chapter. There's not going to be another law given as it was in the Old Testament. There's not going to be another exodus and a a finding of the promised land. There's not going to be another promise to Abraham. There's not going to be another son of God given as a sacrifice to us. That work has all been done. We're in the last chapter that culminates in the return of Jesus. We are living and have been for the last 2,000 years in the last chapter that culminates in the door being closed on the ability for us to um, be saved. So when you look at it like that, okay, although the last days have gone on for 2,000 years, there is a real sense of urgency, isn't there? And I think that's why God gives his spirit. He gives his spirit so that we can respond to that sense of urgency. And what's the sign? The sign is dreams and visions. What do you think when you hear that phrase? God will give dreams and visions. He's going to give young people visions. He's going to give older people dreams. I don't know where the barrier between young and old is. Are you... uh, a visioner or a dreamer. But sons and daughters will prophesy. What do you think when you hear dreams and visions? See, if we look at the rest of the book of Acts and you see the dreams and the visions that are given, look at Acts 9, Ananias. He has a vision to go and commission Paul for great missionary work. Peter, in Acts 10, has a vision to carry the gospel and the spirit to the Gentiles. And then in Acts chapter 16, Paul has a vision. uh, Sorry, it was Peter um, had the vision in uh, Acts 10. And Paul, in uh, Acts 15, has a vision of Europeans saying, come on over to Macedonia and help us. All those dreams and visions were relating to how can we spread the good news? They weren't just fanciful dreams and visions about, oh, I've got a great vision to do this or a great dream to do that. They were God-given, spirit-inspired dreams and visions as to how to bring about God's kingdom. So what are your dreams and visions? As a church, what are our dreams and visions? Now, we've been looking over the last couple of months at where do we stand as a church? What is our vision? And those of you who've been kind of keeping up with what's been going on and uh, have read the stuff that I circulated uh, earlier um, around our vision, our values, our mission, and uh, those of you who have been uh, engaged in the uh, uh, dialogue that we've had in church meetings will know that we're working towards being a church that looks something like that, to be led by the Holy Spirit and his revealing of the truth in the word, to be empowered through prayer, sincere in worship of God, and committed to supporting 
journeys of Christian discipleship, being committed to serve God in a relevant way and accountable. That's the kind of church I think we should be. But so what? (laughs) What does that actually mean? What visions and dreams do we have to outwork that and bring it to life for our community? And there's four areas that we've um, been looking to focus on. The areas of discipleship and evangelism, community engagement, pastoral, prayer. The more I look at those four areas, the more I'm convinced that that is absolutely what we need to do as a church because it's absolutely 100% aligned to what the early church was doing. So I ask you, what are your dreams and visions in those areas? In fact, no, I would call you as a church to be involved in helping us shape what do we do to outwork the dreams and visions of our church. Because if we're not responding to the dreams and visions God gives us, if we're not responding to that call to make disciples of all nations, if we're not responding to go out into the world, if we're not responding to love mercy, act justly, and to walk humbly with our God, if we're not responding to that call to in all things be committed to prayer, then what are we doing as a church? So please, as we kind of move on this next step and we look at what are we going to do to really um, bring about discipleship and evangelism? What are we going to do to win um, hearts, to win this lost world for him? Please, please be involved. Let this be a a whole church um, vision. Let it be a whole church mission. I want to briefly touch on the whole thing of evangelism. And uh, I don't know if you noticed Peter's sermon. It wasn't the most seeker-friendly sermon. He didn't tell any jokes. Um, He didn't have any helpful illustrations. Basically, what he said was he stood up and said, you killed Jesus. He said, verse 23, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him to the cross. And just in case they haven't got it, in verse 36, we hear also, he says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He didn't pull any punches. His message was, you killed Jesus. you know what, that's a message that the world doesn't want to hear. (laughs) There was an interview once with the Detroit Free Press um, given um, with the singer-songwriter Billy Joel. Um, And in response to a question about why he was an atheist, Billy Joel responded, there's a guy nailed to a cross and dripping blood and everyone's blaming themselves for that man's torment. But I I said to myself, forget it. I had no hand in that evil. I have no original sin. There's no blood of any sacred martyr on my hands. 
I pass on all of this. What a terrible thing. But you know, the world that we live in today is living kind of by that mantra. That actually everything is okay, so long as you believe in it. Your own truth is okay. And you don't have to feel guilty. Because actually God doesn't even exist. (laughs) Peter is standing up boldly and saying exactly the words that these people needed to hear. You killed Jesus. But you know what? God God had a plan. Because the crucifying of Jesus was not the end. God raised him. Whilst he was buried during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he was resurrected at the Feast of the First Fruits. And his Holy Spirit was poured out at the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, the harvest. It was all part of God's plan. And what happened? Despite the fact that this was not a seeker-friendly service and sermon, 3,000 people were convicted and came to believe. Now, when did we last hear that number, 3,000? When did we last hear about 50 days after the Passover. Let me cast your minds back to Exodus. Where were the Israelites during the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after Passover? They were on Mount Sinai. What were they doing? They were receiving the law, the Ten Commandments. And what happened when Moses came down from Mount Sinai? He found that they'd built an idol. And what did he command? He commanded that the Levites should get together and go through the camp, killing people. Think back to Exodus 22, verse 28. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 people died. I don't think it's a coincidence (laughs) that when the law was given, 3,000 people died. Because the law reveals our sinfulness. The law exposes what we've done wrong. And the law brings death. When the Spirit comes, he brings life, he brings truth, he brings understanding. And 3,000 people were saved. The message is a plain one. And I pray that as a church we'd allow the Holy Spirit to move and to speak. To envision us, to embolden us, just like the early disciples, to stand up in those temple courts and not afraid of being mocked, but speaking the truth, speaking honesty, because it's in truth and honesty that men are saved. Yes, we're in the last days. How long? I have no idea. It's all according to God's planning. And that's why God says, wait. (laughs) Be prepared to wait. It could be another 2,000 years. It could be two weeks. But... We are in a lost world. 
We're in a world that's subject to the law. We have people in our village, we have neighbours, we have family members who, unless they hear the truth, are lost. I pray that through what we do in the outworking of our vision as a church, we can move those people from being amongst the metaphorical 3,000 subject to the law and death to being those that are able to enjoy life, eternal life, because of what Jesus has done. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the outpouring, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would never treat that lightly. Lord, I pray that we would earnestly seek that your dreams, your visions would be worked out in our personal lives and through this church. That your kingdom would come in this place. Amen.